Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Changes podcast with me, Annie Mack. This podcast is a place where we talk about all things change. Right, talking of change, I've made two changes in my life this week. Once more, one hopefully a bit bigger. Uh, The first one is I've started cycling to work. I've had my bike for probably 10 years. It's really, really rickety and it makes a kind of screechy noise as I cycle. So uh, I pumped the tyres and it's just been a revelation. It's been so lovely cycling to work. I'm getting there super energised and then I'm coming home and it's still light and the sky is all bammy and pink and warm and oh I've just really enjoyed the whole experience of cycling to work so that's just a little thing that has been improving my mental health this week and a bigger thing that's only the very kind of nucleus phase but it's something again I've been meaning to do for ages and wanting to do for ages but I'm speaking to two women who run a charity on Friday about mentoring um, it's something I've been wanting to try and find space in my life to do for a long time and I've kind of finally figured it out um, and I'm really excited to be able to kind of work with young people and um, kind of learn from them and hopefully be able to to have them learn from some of my experiences as well so I'll let you know about that moving forwards so yeah that's that hope you're good we are now about to hear an incredibly interesting and educational and enriching conversation it happened ages ago uh I think it was February it feels like it was about 10 years ago now but of course it was pre-covid and it was with a woman called Sinead Burke. Sinead is an Irish writer. She's an academic. She's an influencer. Uh, she's a fashion icon, a front row regular at the shows. She's a broadcaster, a teacher, an activist and an advocate for marginalised people everywhere. But specialising in disability activism because she was born with a chondroplasia or dwarfism, as it's more commonly known. She calls herself a little person. She's 105 centimetres tall. One in 20,000 people are born with a chondroplasia and Sinead Burke has made it her life's work so far to have little people acknowledged in design. Her TED talk, Why Design Should Include Everyone, is essential viewing. And what's important is that her activism is cutting through. A couple of years ago, she appeared on the cover for the business of fashion alongside Kim Kardashian with an interview as part of the Age of Influence series. She was one of 15 women selected to appear on the cover of the September 2019 issue of Vogue by guest editor Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex. She is the first little person to ever attend the Met Ball in custom Gucci, no less. Her dress was gorgeous. So that's just a few of her most recent achievements. People are really noticing Sinead. People are really listening to Sinead. And when you hear her in conversation, you will understand why. Please enter the podcast, Sinead Burke. Okay, so I'm sat in a studio in central London that is kind of akin to an interrogation room. And for that, I can only sincerely apologise to my um, amazing guest today, Sinead Burke. Hello! Hi! This is such a treat. I'm so happy that you're here. No, I am honoured to be sitting across from you and this feels 
like the most surreal thing that has ever happened. Well, I actually DM'd you because I, I was and I was like DMing you as a fan girl because my sister was the one who who told me about you first. She was like, you've got to follow Sinead Burke on Instagram. She's amazing. So I started following you. I've been following you for a good while now. And just watching you kind of the awareness of you grow and doing things like Seth Rogen and getting front rows and fashion shows and like just people learning about you and discovering you and falling in love with you. I was like, I'd love to talk to you. And then I reached out when you were like, mad to talk to me. And I was just <laughs> like, this is the best day ever. Well, I had just done an interview for Stylist and they had asked me this question of like, what podcast are you listening to? And I was like, Annie Max. Yeah. And then I sent it to you and I was like, I promise I'm not stalking you, but this is just a wonderful coincidence. Please, please don't send me a restraining order. Well, it's not. It's not strange. <laughs> not um, yet. So listen, I've been listening to your podcast all week and I hope you don't mind, but I wanted to start, and this is the only thing I'm going to do, steal from your podcast but I wanted to start the conversation by asking you the question that you ask all of your guests uh, on your podcast which is how do you describe yourself both professionally and personally the wonderful thing about having a podcast is that you can ask this question to others with no expectation that you have to do My so, bad. so thank you um, <laughs> professionally I'm really interested in how we redesign spaces and places to make them more accessible and equitable I have dwarfism I stand at the height of three foot five inches tall and I'm a little person and I have lived my whole life in a world that wasn't designed for me. And that has really shaped my entire lens on everything I do and experience Mm. with a background in education and understanding from teaching in different areas that education is also a space that is not designed for everybody. And I look at my work as in four pillars, advocacy, education, consultancy and communication and everything is purpose-led hopefully to try to make a difference and change those things in collaboration personally I am a Virgo okay (laughs) I say that at the complete irritance of my brother who's like that stuff is nonsense there's no science to it but I like to think of myself as curious and kind I'm deeply ambitious Mm. and I'm surrounded by the most extraordinary friends and family who have given me the space and the permission to do what it is that I love and have always dreamed of. And I think if I could do anything or could describe myself in the way that I hope my friends would is that you leave my company feeling a little bit better about yourself and the world. I hope. You grew up in Ireland? I did. Still reside in Dublin? Yeah, I do. Where was it, Navin that you grew up in? Yeah, I still live in Navin. What What was it like? So I lived in Dublin until I was twelve, and then moved outside to the commuter belt, and it's about thirty miles, about fifty kilometers outside of Dublin. And I grew up in a working class area in Dublin, and my parents, particularly my mother, always instilled in me this idea that it's not where you live, it's how you live, and how your value as a person is not based on your postal code or where you go to school. That actually, it's how you imprint on the world and on others and how you make others feel and the responsibility that you feel as a citizen. And that shaped me in ways that are immeasurable. And my family are extraordinary people. You know, my dad is a little person also. All of my siblings, I'm the eldest of five. My siblings are all average height. My mom is average height. And my parents, when I was seven years old, founded Little People of Ireland, which is the national organisation for little people and their families, and mm-hmm. voluntarily still run that organisation 20 years on, and have literally created a community for people to see themselves within it and to create role models and space for education and social opportunities and 
in many ways, I learned my advocacy from them. But mm. growing up, you know, my parents instilled in me the notion that anything was possible, that I may have to find a different way of doing things, particularly for my own brothers and sisters. You know, if I needed to reach something, my method of doing that was different. Mm. It wasn't less. It was just a different way in which to do it. And I wanted to be a teacher from my very first day of school and viscerally remember coming home and loving the experience of learning through imagination and play and came home and told my mum and dad that I wanted to be a teacher. And their only response was one of enormous celebration and absolutely, go and do it. Mm. And I never thought that it would be a challenge because my mum and dad always said that it was possible. And I don't have any children, but I kind of reflect on that moment now and realise my parents must have been really nervous. Not because they didn't think I'd be a good teacher, but maybe the world wouldn't let me because... Mm. I grew up wanting to see myself in film and television. Someone looked like me being the protagonist of the story rather than the butt of the joke. I wanted to see a doll that looked like me and, or even to have a teacher who looked like me. And for my education experience, those things didn't happen. And as I was doing my final exams in Ireland and about to set on a journey to go to university and go to college, it was their support of my dream and their belief in me as a person that really gave me this trajectory to be able to go and do it. How was it having a father who looked like you, a father who was a little person, did that have a profound effect on you? In ways that I don't even think I could calculate. 80% of little people are born to two average high parents. So most of my friends are the only one who look like them in their family. Mm. My dad was born here in the UK and he was the only one in his family. And when my parents were having children, there was a 50-50 ratio of their children being a little person or being average height. And among my five siblings, I'm the only one who's a little person. It's just pure science in terms of how that worked out. Mm. And, you know, growing up, I knew everything would be okay because it was for my dad. And my dad had this amazing life and he is the most feminist person I know and so full of love and joy and just incredibly talented in so many ways that our challenges were different. You know, him being a man and me being a woman and a young girl, you know, I had questions about where will I buy a dress and clothes and shoes and having questions about high heels. And my dad had no interest in wearing high heels, you know. And Why not? <laughs> I know. How rude. And my dad very much could, but had no interest in wearing high heels. So the questions that we had for one another were different. Our experience in the world based on our gender alone mm. was different. But it was enormously powerful because it was just this solidification that I could do anything that I wanted because, I mean, my dad did. Tell me about what it's like being the oldest of five kids. I'm the youngest of four. Oh, I, I think I'm really lucky that so much of the physical responsibility that often falls to the eldest child as the only one who was disabled some of it I wasn't able to do and some of it I used as an excuse to not do it. <laughs> and my sisters, particularly because they're next in age to me, stepped up. And it was never a tool by which to feel negative energy towards me. They were never feeling like they had to do more than they should because I was disabled and why couldn't I? Mm. It was just part of what they did and their very natural process of being themselves and I'm incredibly grateful to them for that you know they are my greatest supporters and they think about my access needs in ways that I don't you know I went for lunch with my sister last week and we were texting and she said to me oh and I've rang ahead to ensure that there's chairs that work for you 
I would never think of doing that. You know, I would never ring a restaurant ahead and kind of think, oh gosh, is it just high stools? I would probably just show up and if it was, figure out my access within that environment when I'm there. And they think about my disability and undoubtedly my dad's disability in ways that I don't have to, which is why it's so important, I think, that the Little People of Ireland community is open to them too. Um, My sisters are extraordinary, but I think growing up, I knew that I wanted to be a teacher from early on because during the summer holidays I used to play this game and I used the word game with real flexibility yeah. called club, which was basically just school. Okay. And me, I used to spend all of these time making notebooks and for us to do school. And I used to be really frustrated with my sisters because I was in second class and I was eight and I just expected them to be able to do the maths and the English and the Irish and all of the subjects that I was doing at my level whilst they were four. Yeah. And I used to be, you know, come on, and we play club. And my sister was like, this is the last thing we want to like, do. In July. In July. Like, come, come just but everybody break, was sat like in a classroom and I was like, <laughs> correct it. I got such joy out of like using a red pen and gold stars and, you know, and huge amounts of fun. But my sisters, bless them, they encouraged it. And yeah, they're the best people in the world. How, I mean, you said on the first day of school, you came out and you're like, right, that's it. I want to be a teacher. How was your school experience, primary and secondary? It was great. Mm. You know, my parents were the advocates I needed when I couldn't articulate my access needs myself. Mm. And I started school on the day of my fourth birthday. There was some fears and nervousness that maybe academically I would struggle. So at least if I was a little bit younger starting school, I would have some room in okay. case I needed to repeat. I didn't. And my parents, you know, I was kind of walking and talking and spelling. And I remember starting my first day of school. And my birthday's in September the 19th of September so I was 19 days later starting than everybody else and I remember going into the classroom and rehearsing this speech that I had done to introduce myself to these four and five year olds I was like hi my name is Sinead I have a chondroplasia that's A-C-H-O-N-D-R-O-P-L-A-S-I-A and I'm four years old and my school experience was great you know the school were so open to working in collaboration with my parents and with me from something as simple as having a lower hook in the cloakroom to hang my coat or looking at the bathroom experience I know that there was like a flight of stairs built up to the sink so that I could do it with independence Mm -hmm. and it was all about redesigning the environment to ensure that I got to have the same experience as everybody else all the while understanding that my needs were perhaps a bit different Mm. and I think that really opened me up to more wanting to be a teacher and understanding that this was a skill that I could revel in and you know undoubtedly there were questions particularly in the playground from older kids about why I was different and why I was smaller and my parents were really insightful in that they gave me language and phrases for those answers like when kids would ask why are you so small I would just respond to them and say well why are you so big and they would say I I don't know and I would say well I was born like this and I didn't understand the power of that when I was so young and if moments became particularly malicious or unkind you know I would go home upset to my mom and I would say, like, people are being awful. Mm. And my mom would say, well, that's a choice. You know, you didn't choose to be a little person. You didn't choose to be disabled. But we do each choose how we behave to ourselves and to others. And like, who do you want to be? Do you want to be you who didn't choose your circumstance mm. but are a kind person? Or would you like to be the person who makes others feel small to make them feel good? And that really gave me not only a resilience but a real grounding in the impact that we can have on others and a real understanding that I am Sinead not in spite of my disability but because of it. Mm. It's shaped everything I do. You're a mammy, Mammy Burke. She's, yeah, she's incredible. What a woman. 
She's amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, so you leave school mm-hmm. and you fulfil your dream mm. to be a teacher. Mm. Um, I've heard you talk briefly about your, your years of teaching and I was quite surprised, I don't know why, I put, you, you said that you, were, you taught 12-year-old boys, 26 of them, mm. in an inner city school in Dublin. For some reason in my head it was mixed. I, 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 I don't know, I, just, I, I don't know what I imagined, but that sounds like an intimidating room. Was it? Did it feel like that at the time? It was in the final year of my degree and I was given a kind of teaching practice placement and I remember getting the letter and they said I was going to be teaching six-class boys in the inner city and I remember thinking, they are setting me up to fail here. And I think everything that I believed about children, you know, when I first started uni, there was this girl in my class and she sat with me and she said, how are you going to do it? How are you going to control the kids? They're going to be bigger than you. And I think that was the first moment in which I began to think maybe this isn't going to be possible. And I realised that it was a terrible way for her to think about children mm. and to think about young people and to look at the role of teaching. But actually teaching is about respect. Mm. And if I wanted respect, I had to demonstrate it. And that was the same if the children were four or if the children were 12. But actually it was teaching those boys both in the teaching placement and then when I became qualified in teaching afterwards, that really underpinned not only that notion of respect, but, you know, when I was in the classroom, so much of it wasn't designed with me in mind. From the light switches to being able to open the windows to hanging the artwork on the walls to reaching the blackboard. But actually teaching in the inner city in Dublin taught me that the curriculum was never designed with those boys in mind. That when I was teaching about homes, you know, the pictures that were in the workbooks were of cottages with thatched roofs. My boys had never seen a farm animal, never mind a cottage with a thatched roof. And so many of them were either living in temporary accommodations or had experiences of homelessness within their life, but that was never included in the curriculum because the people who designed that were designing for their own experience. And it gave me this universality that I had never really considered and thought of. And actually my way into teaching those boys was much like my own experience, looking at their local environment and thinking how you could bring meaning to it. Mm. So the boys hated maths. They just thought that there was no real value in it. They didn't see any representation of it in their own lives. So I used to teach maths with the local takeaway menu. Oh my God, Sinead. And I'd bring it in and I'd tell them the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And they'd look at me and think, does she know that she's little? (laughs) And I'd be like, yes. And Snow White and Prince Charming have gone on a last minute date but they've left us, Snow White's left 60 euro for us to buy dinner for the Seven Dwarfs, but because they're seven men, like, they're fussy. We have a vegan, we have a pescatarian, we have somebody who is celiac, complicating the maths for those who were able to do so. And it really gave me an opportunity to sit with boys who really struggled with the academic element of it. And I sat with one boy, and I said, listen, let's just work out the chips. He was like, great, one bag of chips is two fifty, two is a fiver. Mm-hmm. Boom. Yes. So you do know maths. So I wrote Just down the multiplication. not in the framework of academia, yeah. Right? So I wrote down the multiplication. I was like 2 decimal point five zero multiplied by 2 equals 5 decimal point zero zero. He looked at me like I was bananas. He was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, that's what you just did. You just did maths. And he was like, no, I did dinner. <laughs> right? And adults, like, we can laugh at that. But he was being so sincere because... When we were talking about multiplication, it was never given within the framework of his life. So he saw what he did at home as just living. Mm. He didn't see that it had any sort of equation with school. Mm. 
And being able to bring those things together increased his confidence. Mm. And actually, isn't that such a representation of life in general? And, you know, it's being disabled in the classroom, what everybody saw as a challenge and as a reason for me not to be a teacher. I had a visibility and awareness to things that perhaps others didn't. Absolutely. And that was a classic moment of it. Or, you know, when I was teaching because I couldn't reach the blackboard, I taught using PowerPoint presentations. Mm. And having to flick between PowerPoint presentations from one subject to another takes about 90 seconds, which is just enough time for 26, 12-year-old boys to cause chaos. Mm. And I remember thinking, I need something in this moment to just settle them or to have some sort of transition. And like they were streetwise. They didn't have any value in like giving them a gold star for the well-behaved mm. student mm. or teaching them a clapping game. But what they valued was music. So I used to hook my iTunes account and my Spotify account into my laptop. Mm. And at the end of every lesson, somebody would get to play a song from Miss Burke's jukebox for 90 seconds. And they were all like profanity, clean and everything. But of course, for like three weeks, everybody was trying to prove how cool they were. Yeah. So we listened to Ed Sheeran and Calvin Harris on repeat. No mm. disrespect to either of yeah. those artists, but it was just a lot for three weeks <laughs> on repeat. And about three weeks in, kind of one of the boys who like would demonstrate some of the most difficult behaviour in my class came up to me and he was like, Miss, do you have Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel? What? Right? And I was like, no, but I can get it. Mm. I said, do you mind me asking, how do you know that song? He said, it's my dad's favourite song. I said, okay. And a couple of days later, he was awarded it and he said, will you play that song? So I did. And it starts positively (laughs) and the boys initially were like what is this what's this shit and I said this is his choice this is his song it's his dad's favourite song and we began to listen and kind of I thought nothing of it but the next song that was asked for was You Too and then it was Sinead O'Connor and what I'd realised was the boys were going home saying to their parents what's your favourite song And it became this shared experience between home and school that actually was a result of me not being able to reach the blackboard. And it was so powerful in terms of gaining that respect because school was more than just teaching 10 subjects over six hours. Mm. But it was this clear indication that I was invested in not only who they were, but who they could be. Mm. And also the body that you're in providing not a lesser experience, but but a bigger, broader experience that is richer. And it being a vehicle to connect and Mm. it being an understanding that empathy and vulnerability were power. And, you Mm. know, like I said, I couldn't reach the artwork on the walls. Mm. And everybody was so concerned about what would I do? Would I bring in a friend after school and get them to do it? Like the boys just did it. Mm. But it created this opportunity for them to be curators of the artwork in their class Mm. and that they could say to one another, God, Miss Parker Art is really not great this week. (laughs) And it's not (laughs) because it's not my skill. But that promoted opportunities for criticism and for public speaking and articulation and for leadership that if I was physically able to do it, I would have just done it. Tell me about the turning point for you from teaching to to actually making a career out of your activism and your love of fashion. I had been asked to go into classrooms up and down the country in Ireland from parents who were part of Little People of Ireland. They were coming to my mum and dad and saying, my child is getting a really tough time in the playground. Okay. People are, the kids are being mean 
Mm. My my child doesn't want to stand up for themselves. They shouldn't have to. The teachers don't know what to say. The principal is afraid of them getting involved and sanctioning people. And as a parent, I don't want to go into the class and explain in front of my child Mm -hmm. why people should be kind to them. Is there anything you can do to help? And my parents in their infinite wisdom was like, Sinead will go. And I did. And I went into these classrooms where I didn't know the children. And I started by asking questions such as, where have you seen someone who looks like me before? And outside of the kid who was in their class, having some sort of consciousness of maybe I've seen them in a film or maybe I've seen them in the supermarket. Mm. And really the purpose of those conversations was to have this real understanding of we're all different. And actually, I'm really lucky that my difference and my greatest challenge is so immediately obvious. Mm. That automatically, not only do I figure out who you are as a person or how we're going to get along based on how you react to my difference, but you can figure out ways to help me without probably me even having to ask. So we're sitting in the studio and there's a beautifully brightly coloured footstool right by my chair that I'm so grateful for. But I don't know what your challenge is, Annie. Mm. And how long are we friends Mm. before you tell me? And actually the vulnerability of you having to come out with that and be Mm. worried about how I would think about you differently based on that, right? Mm. And actually that's something that we should all celebrate, the fact that we are different. That's human nature. And that was happening concurrently as setting up a blog. It was an assignment as I was training to be a teacher. Mm. And the idea was that if we had these blogs for our classrooms, we could update them as to what we were doing in school so that parents would have some idea what was going on in the classroom. Yeah. And the blog was, he said, you know, for the assignment, you can write about anything you want. So I wrote about Kate Blanchett wearing Givenchy Couture to the Oscars. And these things happening together at the same time simultaneously because I was interested in fashion in probably the same way that I'm interested in language. They were two tools that I could use and demonstrate to very visibly tell people that I wasn't a child. They were symbols of my maturity. And yet understanding that sitting across from you in a blue, ethically made sweater says something about me, Mm. I couldn't access and buy it. And I was just never considered within the design of that industry. Mm. And I never thought I would work in fashion, the idea of being able to say a sentence like that still feels really alien. But I think one of the big turning points was doing a TED Talk, which was never supposed to happen. I mean, that TED Talk is just incredible. Well, it's not nearly what two million people have viewed it. And I just think you, oh, it's just so powerful. It's so brilliantly done. I, I just watched that and was so moved by it and so inspired by it in so many ways. You must have had a massive reaction to that. It was huge, but it was never supposed to happen. I was in New York to be at an event that a fellow advocate was facilitating. And about 20 minutes before the event happened... No. She got nervous. And she said to me, I can't do the speech, you need to do the speech. I was like, I don't know any of these people. Like, I'm Irish, I've come in for this, I go home tomorrow. Like, what are you talking about? She was like, "I, I just can't do it. Like, you need to give the speech. I was like, right, fine. Nobody will know about this. What, so, where's the speech? Are you telling me you had 20 minutes to plan this speech? Well, this was not the TED Talk, but kind of in the how the TED okay. Talk came about. And I said, sure. I said, where's the speech? And she was like, oh, no, it's not written down. Like, you'll just have to make it up. And I was like, great. And I was in this room where everybody was like sitting along the walls. And I was conscious that no matter where I stood, I would have my back to somebody. Yeah. So I stood in the center of the room and rotated on the spot. Yeah. No idea what I said. And I came home. And this woman called Chi Perlman, who'd been in the room, emailed me and said, Hey, Sinead, my name is Chi. 
I worked at TED. Have you ever considered giving a TED talk? I was like, no. <laughs> and from that, she offered me this TED talk that was happening on the 8th of March, mm. 2018. That was 2017 even. And that was kind of the catalyst that changed everything. But I don't know if I'd have met Chi under a different circumstance. I don't know if our paths would have crossed. I don't know if I'd have been in New York experiencing that without that moment. So it felt just serendipitous, but it's the most terrified I've ever been. It was... You wouldn't have known it looking at it. I mean, you 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 look so measured and so in control. My dress rehearsal the night before it was horrendous. I forgot two sections. I got the order wrong. I just couldn't remember it. There's no order cue. It was nine and a half minutes. I had never learned anything Which is that a length. Fuck load of time when you're doing a speech on your own. Well, I was just like I, I was just so nervous, and I had skyped home the next day trying to practice and trying to get support from family, and they were so supportive, but I just couldn't get it right. I had this kind of cognitive block about doing mm. it and couldn't do it and the evening of TED I had to lock myself in the disabled bathroom in TED's headquarters and stand in front of the mirror and I told myself two things you know nobody can tell the story better than you can because it's your story and the reason why you're nervous is because you've heard all of these things that TED's going to change your life but why don't you just wait and see because it might not and even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't, like this is something personally you've wanted to do for so long. So why don't you actually just enjoy it? Because in five years, when you look back on this, you don't want to think, God, you know what? If only I'd a bit, been a bit more in it and been present and at least been able to experience it. Why don't you just see what happens and revel in it? And that really calmed me. And then going out and standing on that red dot and I think in that moment, I just tried to remember what it was like being at the front of a classroom and trying to bring the audience with you and teach them something, as ironic as that may sound, and really sitting comfortably within the environment of teaching mm. and the role of that, never knowing what it would become and what it would lead to. It's interesting that switch that you've made from educating people on you know, a traditional academic system of education to educating people on you and, and your life and your needs and the needs of, of little people all over the world. How... How does that feel? Does it ever feel exhausting for you, having to constantly explain yourself and constantly alert people to what isn't there and what isn't designed for little people? Like one of the really impactful bits of that speech was you being really honest and being like, what happens when you need to use a public bathroom? What happens when you need to do things that like a person in an average body doesn't even think twice about? Is it exhausting having to keep going to those places and trying to explain yourself over and over again? In every room that I'm in, historically, you know, talking to people about the importance of including disabled people within a business model or within mm. a consideration for how we build things, kind of the phrase that I hear most is, we haven't thought about this before. The idea of in fashion, it's not that people on the margins aren't welcome, it's that they're not being thought of. Isn't that the kind of initial thing? It's like just be, you being you and being visible means that people are thinking of you before you even speak and even then it's more. You hope. And, you know, in some ways it can be so frustrating to continuously hear that. But I think coming from an education background, my initial responses are, why mm. is that? And how can we do something about it? And I think the why piece is historic. At least from an Irish perspective, you know, our relationship with disability and even globally has been historically like institutionalization. 
that disabled people, if you couldn't care for them, they were considered a burden on your family and a burden on the system. So our response was to put them away in services where in which they could be cared for. And our involvement and understanding of different types of people has now ensured that perhaps that's not the best way. And actually integration in society, but how do we provide those services? And then we moved from institutionalization to a charitable model. Mm. And we gave disabled people and their families sympathy. Aren't they great? And Mary, I mean, she's a hero. My sister has a has a daughter who's got cerebral palsy and, and <clears throat> she's in a wheelchair at the moment or a walker and she says whenever they go to the shops, the lady comes up, she goes, I pray for her. And my sister's like, would you fuck off? I don't want your prayers. <laughs> she's fine. Aren't you so brave? Like, you're so brave. And you would hope that we have moved from that thinking to it not being about charity, but it being about human rights mm. and pride and understanding that disabled people have the right to exist in all of these spaces. And my example with the public bathroom is it's not just about bathrooms, right? Because if we don't design public bathrooms for disabled people or for members of the trans community, mm. then we are literally saying that there is a timeline mm. in which you can exist in public, that depending on how big your bladder is, you're allowed out because we have not designed these worlds for you. And in the example of disability, my argument is something like a sink in a public bathroom, mm. it being designed so high. From a business perspective, I understand that a sink being in every public bathroom made to fit me doesn't make sense because there is one in every 25,000 births is what happens when a little person is born. Mm. But children are everywhere. So why do we not design these spaces for children? Because I too would benefit from that. And I think it comes back to, again, people only designing for their lived experience. And historically, that has been a white, straight, cisgendered, able-bodied man mm. who hasn't thought outside of his own life. And it's about changing who gets to be in the rooms in which decisions are made. Mm. And for me, in terms of your question about, is it exhausting having to be so publicly vulnerable Mm. so often and explaining about something that is like using the bathroom can be tiring but my advocacy is a choice mm. I don't think I am just sitting across from you just because I'm a little person mm. I think that does me and you both a disservice because mm. I have skills that allow me to be an advocate that mm. I have trained in that I have worked hard to hone and to develop and to value mm. and it's something I choose to do for now I mm. may not choose to do it forever but the reason I choose to do it is because I don't want us to be having the same conversation in a year or in two years or for the next generation of little people to have to be facilitating a debate on whether or not they get to exist in the same way as everybody else does mm. that if I can use my skills of being a teacher and an understanding about the importance of empathy mm. to change things, then why wouldn't I? Mm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You talk about design at large in every facet of design living in a world that wasn't designed with you in mind, fashion, of all those industries, feels like the industry that is the most, uh, I don't know, the least sincere. I don't know. And, and maybe I'm totally doing it a disservice, but it's so skin deep. Um, and the fact that you've taken on the fashion world, I love. And you're, and you're clearly making a real difference. Um, how were you first reacted to in fashion and and when did you feel like you were genuinely making a difference and actually tangibly making people change and change the way they think about designing well that's kind of you to say i think in my most personal moments those are the questions that exist in my monologue if you're doing enough if change is happening if Mm. it's tokenistic or if it's sustainable and if it's actually progressing for me i'm not in some ways fashion was a choice in some ways it wasn't I'm very aware that the fashion industry is probably the only industry, if not one of them, that we each interact with, mm. both in terms of that we all have some passing awareness of it, but legally we all have to wear clothes. And based on that, whether or not you shop in the high street, whether you shop vintage and from secondhand stores, or whether you participate in luxury fashion, we all have some consciousness and awareness of it. Mm. And I also understood that due to the Im- the increasing importance placed on red carpets and different public moments. Fashion was an industry that percolated all others. And that if fashion took a step forward Mm. on this notion of inclusivity in a sincere and authentic way, then others would have to. Like Nancy Pelosi coming out of the White House in a burnt orange Max Mara coat. If you don't think that wasn't a choice, then it absolutely was. But I never believed that I would get to be part of it. You know, I was a teenager when I started my blog and it came about because I was interested in how the fashion system worked primarily because I couldn't buy the clothes that I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I thought, this is a bigger industry. How do I understand the complexities within it? And would sit around the dining room table every evening and say to my parents, like, what are Adidas going to (laughs) do? And your mum's like, can you pass a green bean, Sinead? And my mum was like, I'm going to regret this, but about what? And I was like, good. So here's the thing. For such a long time, Phoebe Philo, the creative director at Celine, would take her bow in a pair of Stan Smiths mm-hmm. with the green tag at the back, which is the reason why many of us have them in our wardrobes, even if you're not aware of that. But obviously, Phoebe has just moved from Celine and Hedy Sleman has come in. So what are Adidas going to do? Because Nike have taken Colin Kaepernick as a brand ambassador. Sales went down 5% and then up 23%. So how are Adidas going to maintain that fashion advocate audience? Of course. They're going to hire Stella McCartney and do a vegan stance. Which I loved. Mm. Still too expensive though. Mm. And my mother would go, lovely. <laughs> Is there anybody else you can talk to about this? Anybody at all? And the more I was learning about how the fashion industry worked, the more I realised the necessity of this conversation. Mm. And not just from a, I need and want to buy clothes. But actually realising that 
the inclusion of different types of people would be an opportunity for creativity, for innovation and for profitability. That this was something that the fashion industry couldn't afford to not participate in in a meaningful way Mm. for its future. But the challenge with that is the way in which to do that authentically requires a transformation of the system from the inside out and from the top down and bottom up. And how looking at it as an opportunity for greater things moved it out of this relationship of sympathy or that it's something profitable in the current era in terms of publicity. Mm. But actually, you know, the way in which I think and view the world is always about being a creative solution and approaching that in that way. Yeah. So there's that photo of you, that iconic photo of you in the trench coat. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I read where you talked about the photographer getting out a massive pair of scissors and just and, and kind of hacking around the bottom of the trench coat until you're wearing this incredible trench coat and it's cut. And it's the idea of not hindering, but actually creating, using creativity to as the answer rather than thinking of it as a, as a kind of what's the word, um, a sacrifice or, you know, something like that, yeah. That what you and I both need from the fashion industry yeah, is adaptations and alterations mm. and not thinking of something that's from a medical model, but actually mm. if you and I were both able to go online, right, and particularly online as a starting point, say, because it's easier and it's yeah. less expensive, and actually you as an individual prefer to wear shirts and tops that are three-quarter length or yeah. you have an amazing pair of brogues, actually you want all jeans cut off just before the ankle to show them off. Mm-hmm. That's the exact same solution that I as a little person need. Mm. I should be able to order clothes that have an arm length of 12 inches. And that's actually more sustainable for the environment because I'm not cutting material off when I go to my seamstress and throwing it in the bin. Mm. And it's just about looking at things through a new lens that if you can find the universality in one individual's experience and then provide an opportunity for innovation within that, that's inclusion. And my solution to the fashion industry has never been that I want a line of clothes made specifically for little people because that's providing an answer that's only short term mm. and actually it again is they further be terrible but it's further othering within yeah, an opportunity yeah. that's supposed to be inclusive and it's yeah. the same with the plus sized yeah. categorization yeah. that you go into that store that is supposed to be an experience for you and me as friends but actually i have to go off to my corner and you yeah. get to experience the whole store yeah. and actually how can we bring this in through the entire process yeah. and being able to see some of that changing culturally in fashion, and I am by no means the only person participating in this conversation and doing the work. Lots of people are. But in looking at it as an opportunity, we're like, how do we hire different types of people in fashion? Mm. How do we look at our HR strategy? Do we ask people what their access requirements are? Do we offer interviews in sign language? Or do we wait for people to actually volunteer that information themselves? And how willing are they to do so? Mm. They probably won't even apply. Are our stores in listed buildings? Does that mean that even if we want to make them accessible, we can't due to protecting the architecture of the building? Mm. How are we thinking about who we invite at a fashion show? How are we thinking about product offerings and the language that we use across different geographical boundaries? Mm. And being able to facilitate some of the learning within that is a joy and a privilege that I never thought I'd be able to do. Being able to bring other disabled voices in it too. Yeah. And are you finding that people are really eager to to learn? I think there's an eagerness, but also a nervousness. Yeah, of getting it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But also fashion and teaching are similar in so many ways that I grew up with this real understanding that teachers knew everything. Mm. And the idea of a teacher saying, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it just didn't happen when I was in school. 
even if teachers didn't know the answer, they probably made it up mm. to appear that they did. And fashion is the same. Fashion has had all of the answers. It has been not just the vision, but the creator of that vision. Mm. And for them to now step into this position of vulnerability and saying that we don't have anybody within our organizations who knows these things. So we actually need to bring different types of people into the room to evolve and move forward. Mm. It's such a statement of bravery and such a new way of working that I think there is both hesitancy but eagerness. Mm. Would you like to be in that position as a consultant for, you know, high, for, for fashion brands where you can go in and, and tell them what, what you need and what disabled people need in terms of access. I'm fortunate to be doing that right now. Great. And to be doing it quietly mm. until solutions have been constructed. But I'm also really conscious that working within the luxury market is one solution, but actually it's out of the price point for most people. Yeah. And perhaps most people will even be nervous going in to a store and walking around because they feel like if they can't afford to buy something they shouldn't be in there so yeah. trying to understand that influence is top down yeah. and actually if you can create that change in the most luxury aspects of the market the high street will follow because mm. that's the way it works and mm. I was very deliberate in my advocacy that if I had started this work in the high street luxury fashion probably wouldn't mm. have followed because that's not the way the system works. Mm. But you hope that these two things happen with the acceleration of Kim Kardashian posting something on a Friday and it being available in store on a Tuesday at a different price point. And you hope that that's how it works whilst also deliberately positioning myself in schools and in design colleges and getting the next generation of design talent to think about different types of people or encouraging young people who've never thought of fashion as an option for them or any career as an option for them mm. to try. Mm. You're doing, is it, is it, please correct me if I'm wrong, are you doing something um, with the designers? Um, is it NCID where you're, where you're kind of developing some amazing things? Can you tell me about that? Sure. So I did some guest lecturing in NCID in Dublin, the National College of Art and Design, working with the next generation of designers to think about different types of products. And one of the products that we developed kind of naturally in collaboration with one another is a backpack that's also a footstool. Genius. That is still completely functioning as a backpack. but. Mm. That's the opportunity of working with people, doing some lecturing in, in DIT on the luxury management and buying course and getting them to think about different types of consumers and different types of employees when they're mm. working in these large organisations, working with persons in New York and Open Style Lab and being an advisor to that company, which is this incubator for bringing in young designers and design students, pairing them with disabled people and older people and working in collaboration to create garments and products that are inclusive, accessible and adaptive. Mm. Um, the interesting part of that for me is what companies will these people work in or what brands will they set up themselves where this way of thinking is not something that they haven't thought about before but is part of just how they function within this business and mm. what ideas can be possible within that. Mm. I love what you're saying about <clears throat> the idea of just being able to go online and specify dimensions for clothes. That doesn't feel like that um, far off uh, like an idea that could be really you know easy to do for people right it's customization, and yeah, when we see that we can on mass when we can monogram things and that's where for me the business case comes in because it's not financially possible to make things on an individual level but actually if we understand that this is something that will be the benefit of all customers yeah yeah then it's no longer a question yeah it's genius um can we visit um the idea of you again I didn't know about your first round of visiting schools mm. on an educational level and then you taught in a school and then you went back to visiting schools more recently and would you mind telling me the kind of 
the impetus of why you did that? Sure. It would be a continuing experience of mine that I would be walking down the street and people would point, stare, laugh, maybe call me names, usually midget. And most times I can kind of shake it off and roll my eyes and go, gosh. But I had an experience in Dublin earlier this year where I was walking down the street and it was 12 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon and two 16-year-old boys walked past me. I really thought nothing of it until maybe 30 seconds later one of them leapfrogged over me. All the while his friend recorded the entire thing on his phone. And I was crying and so upset for lots of reasons. I couldn't get over the fact that he might have missed and what would have happened if he did, he would have kicked me in the head. I could have been so hurt. And that even didn't even come into his thinking. Mm. He just didn't see me as a person. I was just merely a vehicle by which he could go viral on the internet. They didn't care who I was or what I did. It was about them. And lots of people walked past. Many people saw it. Did nobody stopped. No, Nobody stopped to ask if I was okay. Nobody stopped... Nothing happened and I rang my mum and she just said ring the police and I did and I've been doing some work with the police about we don't have any legislation in Ireland about hate speech or hate crimes and doing some work about empathy and policing and how it's necessary that when I ring and say somebody took a photograph of me they're not flippant Mm. about it and the police came they took a statement They asked me where the CCTV cameras were and I gave all of that information but really began to think, you know, if these boys are caught, all they learn is not to get caught. They don't actually learn Mm. how it impacted me and the human experience of it. So I called a friend of mine, Michael Dar McCauley, who is involved in this kind of community development organisation called the North East Inner City. I said, I want to do something about this. I want to go to every school in that area and speak to them. And did, both at primary and at second level. And really began this conversation about who, not only I was, but using my lived experience as a case study so that they could find themes of their own lives within mine. Mm. In the hope that you talk to primary school kids who then go home and at the dining room table that evening and say, oh, this girl called Sinead was in today. She's little. She was talking about herself. And that you also reach older people. And... I do know that I went to the school that those boys were in. I don't know specifically who they were, but do know that I was in their classroom. But unbeknownst to me, whilst all this was kind of percolating away, in Ireland you do two rounds of state exams like you do here in the UK. And at 16 you do your junior cert. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't know was that my TED Talk was being transcribed and was going to be the comprehension piece in the English junior cert exam, which those boys had to sit. So the arc of... Finding a gal on the street that you jump over, you film it, you post it on Instagram. She then lands in your school and you're like, oh no. And then she is the way in which you pass your exam. I mean, I hope they got an A because they got a lot of exposure to me in a very short amount of time. (laughs) It's actually amazing, isn't it? How that all ended up. It's incredible. And when you were in those classrooms, did you give, Did was there interaction? Or was it just you kind of telling them, right, this is... Like, how how did it work? I'm interested in that kind of... There's real room for questions. So I talk about how, you know, there were kind of two big challenges for me, both the environment and people. And then I talk about the opportunities that I've had. 
being a little person and showing them some photographs of the experienced experiences that I've had. And then it's amazing the questions that come from it. You know, some people are interested in asking, like, can you drive? How do you drive? And you have to talk them through driving with hand controls. Or they're interested in, you know, can you have children? And you talk them through pregnancy and the rates of pregnancy. Some people are interested in how you were on the cover of Vogue or some people are interested in how you travel or how you get around and just actually fostering that curiosity and encouraging it and talking to them about the importance of language, you know, asking them questions like, how do you think I like to be called? Mm. And it's interesting in how that differs. Some people will say, is it dwarf? Some people will innocently ask, is the word midget okay? Mm. And actually encouraging them that not only to take the word midget out of the vocabulary for somebody like me, but for each other. Mm. You know, midget isn't a word it should be used mm. either as an insult towards me. It's just a word that brings about negativity. It's from an era of freak shows and circuses where there was no other employment opportunity for people like me. And mm. it was used as a marketing tool. And now there's no positivity within it. I'm talking to them about how the fact that little person is the terminology that I prefer, mm. but it's an individual choice. But if you're looking for my attention as I'm outside your school later on this evening, Sinead is what will get you an answer, not anything else. And actually always trying to bring it back to their lived experience. And it was so humbling to be in those rooms and to be able to facilitate that curiosity because in terms of like the ignorance or the lack of exposure, I mean, when else do those conversations happen? Mm. We don't facilitate them. We're so afraid of saying the wrong thing. Mm that we actually just choose to be apathetic because we make it about ourselves. Mm. We say, well, I'll be so embarrassed if mm. I get it wrong. Mm. Instead of realising that our lack of action is just redefining those echo chambers that we live within. Mm. Tell me, Sinead, about the future and you. Because <clears throat> the work that you're doing mm. is incredibly important, but I feel like it is finite in that, mm. you know, the hope, I presume, is that you're going to activate change and... I'll be unemployed. <laughs> in a great way. Yeah. You will have other options and other, other places to go. Where, where are your thoughts with that? I have spent a lot of this year travelling mm. and getting to not only meet different types of people, but trying to build a platform that companies and individuals can invest in and that they understand that you have the expertise by which to do this work. I asked my sister, did you have any questions for you? And she's like, just tell her I'm so jealous of her wardrobe. She's welcome to borrow it at any time. I mean, uh, hemlines will be short, but <laughs> pair of tights, she's grand. I told my mum that I was interviewing today. I said, I'm going to interview Sinead Burke later. I'm so excited. And my mum's like, oh, she's such a lively girl. <laughs> what a compliment. Right? Lively. Um, okay, so I wish you all the best. Thank Last you. Last question before I have no doubt you go and, and achieve all of those things or more is in terms of self-care, looking after yourself, who is out there for you, advocating for you? My mum always has my best interests at heart. Uh, I have a very active family WhatsApp group. It's very active. Mm -hmm. um, Mute any time? No, never. Oh, you no. wouldn't be allowed. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> I, would, I would not be allowed to mute the WhatsApp group now. It's fairly well policed. Um, but they are extraordinary people who... I suppose, you know, tell you the things that you don't often want to hear but need to hear um, in good ways. And they are the people who celebrate every success but are also deeply curious about the long term. Like, this is great now, but like, what about if the fashion industry are only listening for 18 months? Like, what's long term? Do you go back to the classroom? Like, have you thought about this? What are you doing? Um, and then I have a very small but brilliant close circle of friends who are just extraordinary and 
we live in all different parts of the world and we communicate mostly by WhatsApp voice note. So that's it. Every Irish person in their 20s and 30s everywhere. Yeah. Everyone's all over the place, aren't they? And just them being the resource and the litmus test for you in the best and in the worst mm. moments. And I hope I'm there for them in the same way. And in terms of self-care, like those are definitely the people. And then just finding time to do the things that bring me real joy. Yeah whether it is like reading a book or going to get a facial or having lunch on my own with my phone turned off and actually just giving myself time to sit and think. Mm. Um, yeah, that's that's the real opportunities I revel in. I'm really looking forward to hearing more as me and um, I don't doubt that you are going to take over the world, Sinead Burke. I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much to Sinead Burke for her wisdom and her warmth and her humour. And what is very important to know is that as soon as this conversation ended back in February, we went to the pub and carried it on and have been chatting ever since. And yeah, she's she's an extraordinary woman. There's a couple of things that you have to do now as homework, right? So imagine Sinead at the top of the class telling you what to do here. Number one, go follow her on socials. She is the Sinead Burke on Twitter and on Instagram. Number two, go subscribe to her podcast, As Me with Sinead. It's excellent. There's loads of back catalogue there to go and check out. Number three, go look at her TED Talk. It's on YouTube. Just Google Sinead Burke TED Talk and it is there and you will not regret it for a second. So thanks again to Sinead Burke. Let me know, as always, how you feel. Get me on Instagram at Annie Mac or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for your response to last week's episode with Marvin Reese. That was a kind of spur of the moment decision. I really wanted to get him on and I'm so happy I did actually. It felt timely and there's been a really big response, really positive response to him and what he had to say. Uh, thank you to Wild Social UK who said, absolutely loved this episode. We lived in Bristol for 10 years and I have to say it was the most diverse place I've lived. Such a fab place. Great to hear Marvin's take on the statue and everything he says makes total sense with regards to his reasoning for it not going sooner. So yes, thank you for all your comments on him. This episode was produced by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. Next week on Changes, we bring you author and brilliant, funny, honest interviewee, John Ronson. Until then, see you later. See you later.